Well, aloha and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. My name is Michael Benner, your host. Happy to be here for program number 149. <laughs> Hard to believe that we're uh, just a couple of weeks short of beginning year number four. Three years, almost, a couple of weeks from now, we will have completed three years starting year number four of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and expressing my mahalo, my gratitude, and thanks for each one of you who have ever used the link at the bottom of our weekly emailed newsletter to forward the newsletter with the links to this event uh, on to your friends, especially those that you know are interested in personal growth. Because we all know the majority, the vast majority of human beings in our lives and on this planet are not interested in developing themselves whatsoever. They would rather stay with the familiar, even though it's painful, which is bizarre, but in a way it's understandable. It's an ineffective way to manage anxiety and fear, but nevertheless, there's something comforting about my familiar pain, uh, my same old depression and anxiety. But uh, you're here, so you're an exceptional individual. You're one who is saying, I'm sorry, I, <laughs> even though my pain and burnout and depression may be familiar, uh, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I want out. I want a strategy. I want a solution. I want to know how I can put my feet directly on a path toward emancipation, toward personal liberation, okay? toward the pursuit of happiness every day, every hour, every moment, because that's where it is. Your happiness is not in reviewing the past. It's never going to be found in worrying about the future. Your thoughts and to a large extent, even the emotional feelings that disturb us are distractions from reality. And that's where the pain and suffering comes from. So we're going to begin uh, a new format today. We're going to give it a try anyway and see if it works. Those of you who are listening on the podcast, nothing you can do about this except consider joining us live uh, next week or the week after that, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Sundays, Pacific Coast time, 4 o'clock in the afternoon in East Coast of the United States. For those of you in Europe, or anyone who understands Greenwich Mean Time or Universal Coordinated Time, it's 21 hours GMT or UTC, uh, 21 hours during the winter, and when much of the world goes on daylight savings time, it's 20 hours GMT, and we'll be doing that a few weeks down the road. But it'll always be, as far as the rest of us go, 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon Eastern, whether we're in standard time or daylight savings time. Hope that's clear enough. The new approach I'm going to try today emphasizes more participation from you. We have the ability to use text messages, 
with the web page that brought you here and the box you see in the lower left and also the uh, telephone and Skype options that are available here. We've even got 30 or 40 different telephone numbers around the United States in different area codes so that if you're still paying your long-distance telephone bill by the minute, unlike many people, and certainly cell phones, it doesn't seem to matter for most people, but if you still are paying by the minute for long-distance, um, you can get an area code near you and avoid any long-distance charge. Or you can use Skype, which is very high-quality. And again, if you're listening to this podcast, well, consider joining us live in the future so you can participate too. We will continue, of course, to podcast the results of what we do every Sunday in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We do have, according to our information, at least 20 or 25 times more people listening to the podcast than participate live. But we'd love to have you come live. I want, if possible, if at all possible, I'm willing to beg, borrow, and, well, not steal, but I'll I'll do pretty much whatever I can uh, to elicit more response and more input, more feedback, more interactivity um, from this system that we have, which, again, allows you to text in real time from the web page that brought you here, or by pressing star 2 on the telephone, it raises your hand on my computer console, and I can see that you want to come on board, and I can answer the phone a lot like a radio talk show. Okay, With, again, your questions about personal growth, personal development, uh, human potential, let's open it up. Philosophy, psychology, uh, comparative religion, mysticism, metaphysics, meditation, mindfulness, in other words, it begin with the letter M. So, so uh, there you go. It's a little risky for me to do this, but um, I sure would like to. So for those of you with us live today, answer the, uh, consider posting that text question now by using the text box in the lower left, and be sure and hit Submit after you enter the question and stick in at least your first name in your city. That's always interesting, fascinating. And then hit the submit button, otherwise I won't see it. And if you're on the telephone or Skype, press star 2, and that'll raise your hand. I can bring you on then one at a time, or two at a time, or three at a time, or four at a time. If you say, I want to talk to that person that was just on, can you bring them on again? I can bring two of you on. You see, you're three of you, and you can talk to each other that way. Sort of a party line kind of a deal. So we'll see how all of that works. We've got lots of options available to us. So uh, let me see who's on the telephone. We always have more people on the web than on the phone. And let me check the Q&A. And unless and until we get some questions and comments, I'm going to... Well, start out with a little story about how I got into this whole field. 
how I spent 35 years in Los Angeles doing personal development radio. Um, I came out of college with a degree in television and radio broadcasting and journalism because uh, as a baby boomer and a child of the 60s, I thought that this was the best way to tell the truth, to discover the truth and then reveal it. Because I really thought at the time, and now I know that my inclinations were correct, that the news is rigged. It's uh, biased, it's controlled, and it's managed. And if you wonder by whom, all you need to do is stay tuned for the commercials. Those are the people that run the show. Uh, they, they pay everybody's salary. They're the source of the income. And increasingly over the years, I was in radio. I started in commercial radio in 1968. And immediately, as an 18-year-old boy, um, I had my news meddled with. And I had to face a, a dilemma. Do I allow it? Uh, do I push back? To what extent do I push back and fight for editorial control? And at what's, what point do I realize that you know, if you don't play the game, at least to some degree, you're not going to be on the air. And, of course, eventually, <laughs> you know, you know the story of what happened to talk radio. It went all hate all the time. It's nasty. It's mean. It's vile. It's biased. And the owners of the radio station couldn't care less. The idea that you're licensed for three years to use the people's air... Make no mistake about it. Television and radio airwaves belong to the people. All right? Federal lands, in the same way, are really public land. That's your land that the government owns. It's supposed to be your government. But you can see what's happened with the large corporations and special interests. When I began in radio, 6,000 radio stations were owned by 5,000 companies. Now, 6,000 radio stations are owned by five companies, and they all think alike. Not much in the way of ethics, not much in the way of serving the public interest, pretty much just a profit-making vehicle. I'm not bitter about it. I've learned to accept it, and thank goodness we do have the Internet. Technology is decentralizing, and we have no excuse for not using the Internet and using our computers, all the wonderful forms of communication that we now have to reach out to each other, to hook up, to network, and uh, to share and care together, uh, to coin a corny phrase. So what I began to find out in my journalism, broadcast journalism career, is that the news I was doing was not only managed and controlled, but largely irrelevant. It was meaningless. Um, it was basically news of government and politics um, to an extraordinary degree. There was very little in the way of solutions, or what some people call good news, but... Um, you know, Walter Cronkite said once, I always remembered this, 
well, we just can't report every dog that was not lost today. The nature of news is that it's bad news. Well, I understood that, you know, as a journalist. I understand that still. But there is plenty of room for solutions. And yet, again, if the news is brought to you by Exxon, are you going to hear about the hydrogen car? Are you going to get the latest information about green technology and, and the madness of nuclear power, for example? Uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. Not on CNN, uh, not on ABC, NBC or CBS, and uh, not even on MSNBC. Uh, at the risk of sounding cynical, their interest in appearing to be progressive with Rachel Maddow and, and um, Ed Schultz and, and Lawrence O'Donnell and, of course, they fired Keith Olbermann. Um, their bottom line is money, too. They just saw that this progressive market was largely untapped. And, again, I, I, I don't mean to sound cynical, but they're, they're <laughs> the management is looking at the bottom line there as well. So, you know, I'm in this situation doing broadcast news, realizing that what I'm saying in the news and talking about in the talk shows is largely irrelevant and meaningless to people. It's not helping them. It's not empowering anybody. And so I began to use my radio talk shows over the years to interview experts and authors and specialists and researchers in a wide variety of areas wherever human potential work was being done and increasingly became fascinated by that. Uh, I started studying. Uh, I took workshops and seminars. Uh, again, I used my radio programs to pick the brains of these experts and these authors and these specialists and uh, began to teach myself by the early 1980s. And I bet some of you remember, those of you in Los Angeles, the Live and Learn Center. Uh, in 1981, 30 years ago, I began to teach at Live and Learn in Sherman Oaks. Um, various human potential topics, essentially based around stress management, meditation, guided imagery, visualization, these kinds of accelerated learning and accelerated healing skills. That continues to be my passion, human emancipation, uh, to set yourself free. Free from what? What is it that unifies the kinds of questions I'm looking for today? What is the continuity or the thread that runs through every problem that humanity has? Is there a problem? Are, um, how, how do I want to say this? Not is there a problem. We, <laughs> we know we have problems. Is there a continuity? Is there a golden thread that runs through all of these problems? It turns out there is. It's got a bunch of different names. It could be called stress or anxiety or worry or doubt or nervousness or apprehension. Or we could just get honest and call it fear. And what is fear? Fear is ignorance. Well, 
what are we ignorant of that is so frightening? And the answer is who we are, who we truly are, and what we're capable of. In other words, our potential is terrifying to us. And we embrace our problems, we embrace our fear, we embrace our ignorance and hold on to it. Again, because it's familiar, right? And school doesn't teach you to think for yourself. And society, my goodness, there's all kinds of uh, repercussions if you think for yourself. I, I clearly recall in the late 60s or early 70s when Timothy Leary coined the phrase, think for yourself and question authority. And that was controversial. And you chuckle to yourself, but isn't it true that it's still controversial? Here we are in the year 2011. And that remains controversial. Think for yourself. Well, whoever taught us to think for ourselves and question authority, well, what does that mean? What if we question our government? If we question the movers and shakers and opinion makers, the rich and the powerful, the elite, the landed aristocracy, <laughs> that rules, the ruling class in this country, even to say that there's a ruling class in America is controversial. And yet the gap between the rich and the poor has never been greater. One percent of America controls more wealth than 50 percent of the poorest people in the United States of America. One in six American children is hungry and lives in poverty. And yet, we're fighting currently six wars. So, the madness, the insanity is all around us. And it can be overwhelming. And it's designed to be overwhelming. It's really intended to repress us, to oppress us, or suppress us, to confuse, to confound, um, to make us feel tired, and helpless, as if there's nothing we can do. After all, to change the world is a pretty daunting task. Where do I go and what do I do to change the world? Well, it turns out that the best way to change the world is to start with you. To take personal responsibility and work on your own personal liberation, your emancipation, to set yourself free from fear, stress, anxiety, and worry. And that's what I've been about for three quarters of my career, the point where I woke up as a journalist and said, I'd much rather talk about human potential than rewrite news releases from the government. Right? I'd rather talk about possibilities and solutions then focus only on problems and how helpless and irresponsible we all are. It's not your fault, we keep hearing. No, it's not your fault. Nobody's blaming you, but you are responsible. Responsible for the cause? No. Responsible for what you do with it. 
<laughs> responsibility is the ability to choose and implement a response. And that's very, very empowering. So I wanted to let you know at the top of this open conversation program how I got into this field, how excited I am about it. The older I get, the more I love the freedom that I find in my own life, the peace, the love, the harmony, the beauty, the benefits of being kind even when people are not kind to me. And that's a challenge. It's not easy. And I screw up and I make mistakes like everybody else, right? I have regrets and resentments, but I've learned not to dwell upon them and not to identify with them, not to wear them like clothing, but rather learn from them and improve my behavior. Unfolding, just as an acorn unfolds an oak tree, my true potential, what Jung called individuation, or, or the, the transpersonal evolution beyond your sense of self as an ego, beyond your sense of the self that identifies with the separated being in a world of separated form. Because the ego, the ego, the ego will tell you that if it's not you, it's them. Or if it's not us, it's them. That, that there's only you and then the other, right? Or all differences tend to be opposites, therefore in opposition, and that variety is threatening to you. What's threatening to us is our ignorance of variety and diversity and the full range of opportunities and, and possibilities available to us. There is a second coming, but I don't frankly see it in a religious sense, but rather an opening of the heart, an opening of the conscious awareness of ourself as part of a single family of human beings, of part of a single life that includes the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom and could not exclude anything that exists. There is but one life, I'd like to suggest. And you can prove this to yourself. You don't have to believe me. right? If there is more to your sense of self than you know, then we ought to be able to contact it. right? If you have a higher self, if you have a better nature, we ought to be able to tap into it or to stand receptive and open to it and receive communication from it. Now, again, when we do programs like this open conversation, it's the whole field of human potential, philosophy, comparative religion, psychology, learning, healing, mysticism and metaphysics, meditation and mindfulness, and the whole field of altered states, human potential, anything that, that that's a huge area, anything that falls into that, ask, 
type it into the text box on the page in front of you, provided you're with us live here today. And if you're on the telephone or Skype, press star 2 on the touchpad of your telephone or your Skype dialer, and that'll raise your hand, and I'll know to bring you on board. So uh, let's see who's with us. And we'll start with, uh, well, let me just check the phones here. We have very few people on the phones. So let me go to the Q&A and see what folks have to say. Uh, we have, first of all, John from Pinion Hills, California. And he says, hello, Michael, still feeling awesome after a week of the inaugural retreat. Uh, looking at the back of the San Gabriel Mountains with the snow and the desert below, just beautiful. Yeah, I heard it was snowing in the high desert north of Los Angeles yesterday, and I suppose that is beautiful. John, come back with a question. I need a question. I need some input. Thank you, though. Wonderful to hear from you. Carol Postel in La Habra, who says, Hello, Michael and Doreen. Carol, come back, please. With a question, just type in something, anything. You, I know you, <laughs> known you for years. You got a good question. Come on back, help me out here. In Brookings, Oregon, Bruce says aloha. Um, one personal issue, and one not unique to me by any means, is how to keep the most positive attitude, less anxiety, and more hope in these times of unemployment and nagging insecurity. Thanks, as always, and uh, peace to you and Doreen. All right, Bruce. Um, again, you can see why on the telephone we can have a conversation here. i got to sort of run with the question. Um, it's more challenging this way, but uh, it's a great question. How do I stay positive? Right? Very simple. When so much is pulling on me. I read a uh, quotation only yesterday that pops into my mind, maybe because I read it just yesterday. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was by Thich Nhat Hanh, the great mindfulness teacher, uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, sometimes joy puts a smile on your face. But sometimes a smile on your face brings you joy. So I think without being facetious or sarcastic, the answer to your question, how do I stay positive, is practice. I'm not sure we can stay positive. But I think that when we find ourselves, and it's often an insidious, gentle slipping away from a positive attitude, little by little, until all of a sudden you realize that you're really turning over and over in your mind a lot of negativity. I think as soon as you realize that that's happened to you, or that you've done that, bring your attention back to the present moment. Because what hurts us, as you've suggested, is either regrets and resentments from the past or a fear of the future. 
uh, unemployment, for example, or what's happened to the economy, um, I think is of concern to everyone except the super rich. Uh, the super rich are not experiencing any stress at all. Um, I take that back. I think there is some stress that goes with being an unethical, uh, immoral person. But not, let me hasten to add, not all rich or super rich people are immoral or unethical. It's very important that we don't generalize. But many are. We need to be real about that also. So there is a certain anxiety that goes with knowing that you're cheating people. You're stealing from people. You know, you can, if you're poor and snatch a purse on the street, you go to jail. But if you steal from millions of people with bank fraud, um, nobody goes to jail, right? And uh, I don't think the President of the United States or the Congress is powerful enough. I was talking to a friend the other day that was challenging me on the idea that uh, big government is taking over corporations and running General Motors and big governments in charge. I said, no, I, I, <laughs> I think you got it backwards. I don't think it's big government that are running the corporations. I think it's the, the corporations that are running the government. So it certainly can be distressing. But if you let go, as soon as you find yourself doing that, take a breath, breathe. That's so important to remember to breathe and bring your attention this is not denial. There are times to learn from the past and times to plan the future. But the best place to do that is in the present, in the now. And I'd suggest whenever you find yourself in a negative place, say, is this the past or the future, or am I in the present? I think you'll find most of the time that you're lost in the past and worried about the future, but you're not present. You're not in the here and now. If you simply breathe when you realize you've done this, you've been distracted by your thought stream, take a breath or two or three or four nice, slow, deep breaths. And as you exhale, feel yourself relax and bring yourself to your senses to the moment, to what's happening right now. How am I doing right now? And mostly, you'll find that you're doing pretty well. Now, you could be in the hospital and suffering pain, and yet, what's worse? The pain you're feeling right now in the hospital or your worry about what might happen in the future? I suggest the latter is much more terrifying than bringing yourself to the present and saying, well, how am I doing right now? In fact, that's part of the secret of managing pain and accelerating the whole healing process is to relax, to face the fear, to be in the moment, to breathe through it. And once you've identified it and moved directly into it, you know, there's a saying in psychology I think is brilliant. You've got to feel it to heal it. 
And you say, well, it hurts, physical pain or emotional pain. You know, if you examine it, I think you'll find what hurts are the unresolved issues from the past and the fears of the future. But if you put your attention on what's happening right now, in the present moment, it's so much easier to deal with. And then you do your best as a practice to live mindfully in that moment. What's happening now? What's happening now? What do I see now? Well, I see blue sky and white puffy clouds. What do I hear now? Well, I hear birds singing. Okay. What do I smell right now? Well, I smell brown rice cooking on the stove. And uh, the, the, the smell of these vegetables that I'm preparing to go with it. Um, what am I feeling in my body? Well, um, sort of vital and healthy and alive. I guess I feel pretty good right now. Okay, But it's the ego that will very quickly say, you're in way too much danger to be focused on the present. We've got to worry about the future, and from the past, we're going to pull evidence that you should worry about. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I also think part of the practice can be an acknowledgement that life, in spite of its appearances, is a conspiracy to support each of us. And this we can contemplate and meditate upon. The idea that ultimately all we need is air, food, water, some clothing and shelter. Transportation would be nice, but not essential. And that's all really pretty much supplied for you, especially if you have access to land at all. And if you don't have access to land, then do what you can to get a little bit of land. I mean, if you're in an inner-city apartment someplace, um, it's going to be difficult. But, you know, maybe, maybe you could find some land, a community garden to cultivate, or if you have a little balcony, a little window box. Or uh, Remember, my mother had a window box outside her kitchen window. She always grew flowers, but there's no reason you couldn't put some lettuce and tomatoes and some radishes and, you know, some food in that window box, right? Reach out through the window and grab some food. It won't be enough, probably, but it'll be something, and it'll move you in that direction and help you to remember that the, the air that we need is everywhere, that the water that is essential to life falls out of the sky, that uh, the food just falls off trees and pops up out of the ground, and you can say what you want about humans having polluted the air and the water, and they deliberately po spray poison on the food, sort of a crazy thing to do. But that's human behavior. The point is that life, capital L, life, it seems to me is a grand conspiracy to support you. And what we need to do, I think, is align ourselves with it. Now, 
places in Oregon, and I don't know a whole lot about Bruce, but I've I know he's sort of out in the in the countryside in a rural area, and we are too, and so we have access to land. We can grow some stuff. We've got fruit trees on our land here. We're fortunate in that regard, and uh, there's nothing better than the food you bring in the back door from your own garden or your own orchard. And again, it may not be enough, but maybe you can't grow your own rice, but you understand what I'm saying. Every little step you make in that direction of becoming more independent, more self-sufficient, is going to help you, not only in practical ways, but build your confidence. I think the the, the, the sense that that you're going to be okay this is not just simple positive thinking. I'm talking about action steps that we can take. In addition to keeping our attitude straight, I think the best simple direct way to answer your question, how do I remain positive in these troubled times, is to breathe, relax, and bring yourself into the present moment and say, how am I doing right now? Not five minutes from now, not tomorrow or a year from now, right now. How am I doing? And in most cases, I bet you're doing just fine. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Bruce. Let's see, Lorelei in Tucson says, Aloha, Michael. I am excited to talk to you and uh, just learned about Skype. So we'll check that out. We'll go over there in a minute. Uh, just up the street a little ways in Honolulu on the island of Oahu. Our friend Bert is with us. He says, greetings, Michael. I saw an interesting bumper sticker the other day. It said, no love, no peace. And just below that, the line read, no love with a K, K-N-O-W, no love, no peace. Care to comment? Please give my best to Doreen. Mahalo and aloha, Bert. Um, thank you, Bert. Mahalo and aloha uh, to you as well. Well, it's a nice play on words, isn't it? And knowledge is the antidote to fear. Uh, the, there's no question about that. If fear has a primary relationship with ignorance, and if you don't like the word ignorance, if it feels too confrontative, then call it confusion. Or see it as a result of just being anxious and, and nervous in a high-tech, low-touch society. You know, one of the things that our ancestors had that we've lost in just the last couple of generations is family. A nice, big, extended ohana. That's what it's called in Hawaii. Your ohana is... Not just your immediate family, but every cousin, you know, 18 times removed, uh, cousins and uncles and aunties, even if they're not related, but they've just sort of been part of the bigger family. And you have a barbecue and they're going to come over also. Uh, so having that big family in the past, I remember my grandparents had that. Not only did they have eight children, they all ate together around the table. There was no television, right? They had a grand piano where the TV would have been. And most of 
my mother's sisters and brothers played the piano or a violin or some sort of musical instrument. And to have that big family available to you to fall back on if you're in trouble, to go to if you're worried or sick or stressed out is something that we've largely given up. You know, if you've got eight or ten people living together, they may only need one refrigerator. But if you can break that society up into couples and individuals, now you need six or eight refrigerators. And if you make refrigerators, that's a good thing, right? So there has been a financial or economic interest in breaking up the the so-called nuclear family, the extended family, rather, and replacing it with an ever smaller uh, family group. So this is another tip. Anything you can do to grow your family. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to go have a bunch of kids. It, It means you can bring your friends closer and do things for them such that they're more likely than to see the mutual benefit in returning the favor and doing things for you. Help your neighbor. Offer to bring them groceries, to give them a ride, to help them with their gardening. They're more likely to do that for you. And again, do your best to get some access to land and to live with people around you that form a kind of a community. In Buddhism, this is called the Sangha. Create a Sangha or a community of like mind. It doesn't have to be a commune, right? You don't have to put all your money into a central kitty. It's just having friends around you instead of, well, my best friend is 40 miles away and it's an hour drive to get over there and rush hour traffic. It's even worse. Uh, we're getting divided. And, uh, you know, the old saying, divide and conquer. No love, no peace. Let me speak specifically to that. Um, A variation on that is no justice, no peace. And the relationship of justice to peace as qualities of love, I guess is the way I see all of that. I see love as being the the only thing that's real in the universe, frankly, I'll say it again, the only thing that's real is love. Everything that is not love is fear. It's like everything that's not light is shadow and darkness. And that's not real. It's just the absence of light. So ignorance and fear is not real. It's just the absence of love. And love has many qualities, including peace, as in peace of mind, not just the absence of war, conflict, or adversity, but as a state of awareness, a state of consciousness, a level of mind, a peaceful countenance. That's a quality of spiritual love, not emotional love, but on a higher level, spiritual love. And justice as well, peace, justice, and I've done programs on the qualities of love, and I'll do them again in the future, because it's just such a rich topic. It's the only thing that matters, really the only thing you need to care about. What are the qualities 
of love, kindness, compassion, forgiveness and mercy, generosity and tolerance and patience, sense of humor. <laughs> you know, love has many qualities. So that's what occurs to me. Good bumper sticker. Barry is with us, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, if it's Camas or Camas, Washington, C-A-M-A-S, the beautiful state of Washington. And Barry says, I used to listen to you in Los Angeles in KLOS. I took Steve Snyder's alpha training program 21 years ago. He said, my daughter transitions to college this fall, so my wife and I will no longer be anchored to our current town, any ideas to supplement uh, meditation on choosing a better place to live? Well, um, I guess you're talking about wanting to move to a place closer to where your daughter is going to school, if, if I understand you correctly. But in any event, I suspect that uh, I've sort of got to repeat myself a little. You probably stuck that in before I uh, posted that question before I was talking about access to land. I really feel uh, strongly about this. Um, If we just look on a uh, global level, there is by far uh, sufficient agricultural resources to feed everybody in the world. In fact, even given, get this, and check me out on this. Uh, Don't believe anything I say. Check it out. Even given the national boundaries of nations as they're laid out today, there is no nation in the world that lacks the agricultural resources to feed its own people. So why is there hunger and starvation? Because large corporations come in and buy the land. And the land that is intended to be used to feed the people who live there, intended by whom? By life itself. Is used to grow expensive cash crops for export. I mean, all you have to do is go to Mexico, as an example, where there's high level of hunger and malnutrition and starvation. And what do you see? You see acre upon acre of flowers. Looks nice. I'm glad somebody's growing flowers, but the people that work in those fields are hungry. They can't make enough to feed themselves. Flowers, melons, uh, cash crops, fruits and, and, and vegetables that are often shipped halfway around the world to people who can afford to buy them. While the people who live right there and often work in the fields cannot afford them. And when I talk about cash crops for export, we have to include marijuana, cocaine, coffee, tea, 
sugar. My God, look at Hawaii, sugar. Okay, and that's being replaced rapidly by corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, which is far cheaper than cane sugar. In fact, I suspect in the next 20 or 30 years, we'll see a lot of the sugar plantations here in Hawaii shutting down because increasingly the food processors and manufacturers of pre-processed and packaged foods um, in the United States and Europe are going to less Europe, more the United States. Uh, But Europe will come over, I'm sure, and then Africa, and then Asia, increasingly using the much cheaper high-fructose corn syrup, which is a molecule that your body has never seen before and has not had sufficient generations to evolve. Maybe we'll adapt to it, you know, 50 generations if we live that long uh, down the calendar page. But right now, there's a lot of evidence to indicate this high fructose corn syrup is creating this epidemic of obesity and diabetes. And uh, But it's cheaper. <laughs> you know, that's what drives it. So access to land. Well, whether you're renting or buying, I'm not saying you even have to buy, but if you rent a place, why not go out to the edge of town, right? Go out beyond the curb and gutter neighborhoods and see if you can get yourself an acre or a half an acre. Boy, you can grow a lot of food on just a little bit of land, with, especially with raised beds and, you know, a subscription to one or two uh, natural farming or organic gardening magazines. It's amazing how much food you can grow and uh, become a little more independent that way. Plus, it's just a wonderful stress reducer to have your, your hands in the dirt, to be digging around in the dirt. Um, it, it just feels good and creates a sense of, of independence. So, I think that's something that I would consider. The alternative to, you know, we've had this great urbanization where people have rushed to the cities to find jobs working for other people. And all across the heartland of America, if you ever drive, especially if you get off the freeways and drive the two lane roads out in the heartland of America, town after town after town is looking like the Dust Bowl. Or the last picture show, you know, just this deserted little city where nobody can make a living on the tiny little family farm. And they say, well, the only way to make a living is to have a corporate farm with 10,000 acres. Well, there are challenges to family farming, but I'm not talking about becoming a family farmer. I'm talking about having a little garden out and back. And even if you're in a suburban track home, you could do that. I think I think that's just one step in the direction of becoming more independent. And then, you know, a lot of the other tips about using less and recycling and reusing and uh, anything that you can do to reduce your consumption is going to make you a happier person. Uh, so 
If you can move closer to your daughter while she's off to college, I think that's great. If that's what you're asking, if I understand the question, hope so. In Albuquerque, Donna is with us. And Donna says, Michael, what do you think about the stuff floating around, let's see, about the horror of 2012? Oh, okay. And also, what is your opinion of investments in precious metal? And she says, with so much hate and anger going on, what is your opinion? So many questions, so few answers. Um, All right, hold on. Let me have a sip of my coffee here. When I first saw that you had written, what do you think about the stuff floating around? And I hadn't gotten any farther down the sentence there, I thought, Maybe you were talking about the great Pacific trash vortex, uh, <laughs> which is so obscene, I can, I can barely find words for it. We always thought that on some level there were adults in charge. Well, the adults may be in charge, but again, they're, they're primarily motivated by profit. And if you just Google Pacific trash vortex, V-O-R-T-E-X. It's also called a gyre. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. G-Y-R-E. But you'll find it if you just type Pacific Trash Vortex. You'll be horrified to know that there's an area larger than the state of Texas full of garbage bags and assorted packages and trash that is washed out to sea. It didn't all come off of boats, I'll tell you that. It came out of storm drains because somebody threw a, a juice box on the side of the road, and then it rained, and it went down the storm drain, and it went out to sea, and the next thing you know, it's out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the adults are not in charge, or the adults that are in charge are so interested in profiteering that uh, and so myopic that they'll allow this to happen to our planet. And most of us have the blinders on. Once you Google Pacific Trash Vortex, ask your friends about it. See how many of them know anything about it. Now, as far as 2012, which is what you were really asking about, um, this is part of the whole uh, fascination and fixation on the so-called apocalypse. As foretold in Revelation, given the interpretation by many fundamentalist Christians, most of whom have never read Revelation and only know what they're being told by purveyors of right-wing religion. Uh, There's no reason that our understanding of a point where there is a quantum leap or a huge change in the world can't be positive. The second coming, so-called, as far as I'm concerned, is a wonderful opportunity. The second coming... 2012, or actually, I think we're all, I don't think it's a day or a year. I think it's a zone. 
and I think we're already in the middle of it. Um, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, so-called. And it's a wonderful thing. And as far as being foretold by ancient people, well, you know, how bright do you have to be to say, hey, I'll bet you, I'll just bet you that there's going to be some time in the future when some significant number of human beings realizes their potential as spiritual beings to practice love and to be kind and forgiving and generous and celebrate the power of love over the love of power. To borrow from Jimi Hendrix, that's his quote. <laughs> right? Celebrate the power of love over the love of power. I think any wise woman or wise man, any shaman or prophet from olden times, if they sit quietly and reflect upon the evolution of humanity, the unfolding of consciousness, could predict that there will be a critical mass reached at some time. Um, and so I think that's what's been foretold by all these prophets. You know, whether it's Nostradamus or the Mayan calendar. Uh, I thought we went through this in 1987. Who remembers the harmonic convergence? Right? And as soon as we passed that, suddenly it was, no, no, I really meant 2012. Well, wait a minute. We got the same authors and the same people that are promoting 2012 uh, that, you know, uh, 25 years ago, we're saying, oh no, 1987, that's the harmonic convergence, that's the beginning of the new age. I think the beginning of the new age was when the musical Hair opened on Broadway. But, <laughs> uh, again, I see it as a zone, not a point, not a, a date, but a whole period. And it, yeah, I think incredibly exciting times are ahead. And the dinosaurs will become extinct. The people who celebrate the love of power over the power of love are particularly angry and hostile right now, in case you hadn't noticed. They're very, the right wing, so-called conservatives that are trying to take us back in time, when people of color knew their place, and women knew their place, and white men ruled the world. That's basically what conservatives are all about. Going back to prehistoric times. You know, the Republican Party would reinstitute slavery if they thought they could get away with it. Right? They're dinosaurs, and they're going to become extinct, and I think they sense that, and they're particularly freaked out and upset. Forgive them. Have compassion for them. They're terrified. Everything they stand for, money and power and greed and, and dominance and exploitation, status and leverage and prestige all of that is dying 
as love emerges in its many qualities. So I look forward to 2012 and beyond with great anticipation, with great enthusiasm for every day more and more people are waking up to their potential, realizing they're not simply human beings aspiring to understand themselves spiritually. They're spiritual beings having a frightening experience in a separated body in a world of separated form. This is hell. If, if you'd like to use the context of, of religion, this is hell. Because you've been ripped from your awareness of yourself as an integral part of one life and dropped into a separated body with little understanding of your relationship to the world around us. It's a very terrifying thing. That ignorance, that fear, that confusion supports every problem that we have as individuals, as couples and families, as social groups, as humanity. It's all rooted in fear. Every problem is fear and ignorance. And every solution is love and understanding. The problem is the darkness. The solution is the light. But you are the light bearer. See? Don't look outside yourselves for enlightenment, but bring it through your heart and your mind, consciously aspiring to it, caring more about becoming more loving, kinder and more gentle and more peaceful, even when people don't deserve it. Get, <laughs> get over the idea that you're only going to be nice to people who deserve it and be nice to people that don't deserve it people that are mean to you. I know it's hard. It's really hard, right, to be kind to nasty people, much less to be forgiving. It's very challenging. This love your enemy stuff, very, very difficult. Um, but I'm very excited, Donna, about the future, about 2012. I just, I just think that date... What is it? December 21st in the year 2012. It's going to come and go, and nothing really is going to happen. It's going to continue to unfold. All in good order. And as far as precious metal, uh, value is in the eye of the beholder. You know, that's what advertising is about. <laughs> the, what, uh, consider this. If you've never been backpacking, imagine yourself out in the wilderness. And uh, in your backpack, you got a little stove and a little canister of, pro of, of fuel, that uh, not propane, but that camp stove fuel, whatever that is, kerosene or jet fuel, that you put in the little camp stove and you got some food, maybe some berries that you picked or... Maybe you got a couple of packets of freeze-dry food you bought at the backpack store that uh, you haven't used up yet, and and you're way out 30, 40 miles from a road in the back country, 
and you need something. And you reach in your pocket and you pull out a 20 or a $100 bill. What good is that going to do if you're all alone? Maybe you could find somebody who's headed back to civilization that says, I'll take that $100 bill and give you an extra canister of camp stove fuel or a bag of trail mix or here, I got an extra freeze-dried food thing that I'll sell you for only $100. Well, it's got value because he's going back to the city, but if you're all alone out there, can you see how quickly that money loses its value? And so if Glenn Beck or Randy Rhodes, for example, or Tom Hartman says, gold, that's where it's at, gold, I tell you, gold. You going to eat it? Is it going to keep you warm at night? Is it going to comfort your children? If not, (laughs) what's its value? You can argue, well, it's a medium of exchange. But don't you see how symbolic and, and, and artificial it really is? So, you know, if you want to invest in gold, invest in gold. I know you're asking. You're not promoting it. You're curious. I appreciate the question. All I can share is, gosh, I hope I don't sound too cynical or sarcastic here, but I don't see any value in precious metal. They're not precious to me. You know, the American Indians revered silver. They thought gold was cursed. They would never... (laughs) Native American, the indigenous people of the United States... Uh, they would never fashion gold. You don't, you don't see Indian jewelry made out of gold because they thought it was evil. <laughs> Silver and turquoise, yeah, they thought that was beautiful, but it didn't have all that much value to them. They wouldn't kill anybody over it. But a European will. A European will kill somebody, or, you know, that part of America that comes from Europe will kill for gold for a metal. So uh, that's just sort of my... uh, And that came to me backpacking. That's why I use that as an example because every time I would go backpacking, this this symbolic nature of so-called reality would hit me uh, between the eyes. It was just like so profound that what people value in the cities had absolutely no value in the back country. <laughs> it just had no meaning. It was totally symbolic. Like a $100 bill or a $20 pill. At the end of the day, it's a piece of paper with ink in it. And it used to be a promissory note. Now it's not even a promissory note. It's just a joke that everybody agrees. Okay, government printed up this paper, and if they need more, they just print more. And it's not backed up by gold or anything of value. It's it's just sort of a shell game that that the governments and the banks of the world are running on us. Uh, again, I'm a big believer. You want to invest in something, a little piece of land where you can grow some food, right? Um, blankets to keep yourself warm, clothing, gloves, right? Uh, fuel. Something sustainable, 
something, work on appropriate technology and and, and balance and sustainability. And gosh, there was this whole movement back in the 70s of small is beautiful. Remember, some of you will remember E.F. Schumacher's classic book, Small is Beautiful. Or Kirkpatrick Sale, who wrote this wonderful book on uh, human economics. Like, economics should be and could be scaled to meet human needs instead of the banker's needs. It could be about meeting the needs of human beings instead of just the greedy more, 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 more yachts, more mansions. How much do you need? It's never enough. The materialism is heroin. It's cocaine. It's it's never fulfilling. It's never said. It's the power of the ring in the Tolkien trilogy. I know a lot of people that love the Tolkien trilogy, but never talk about what does the ring represent? What is the power of the ring? Why do you have to find a hobbit to throw it into the volcano? Because human beings are so easily corrupted by it. The power of the ring is materialism. It's a gold ring, <laughs> right? And it's worthless other than as a symbol of false power. Celebrating matter, materialism, a world that is impermanent. This is what the great philosophers have always said about the material world. No man steps in the same river twice. Nothing about the physical world lasts. It's all in decay. It rusts and it corrodes and it flows downstream. It gets old. You can't take it with you. Right? So why would we focus on acquiring the stuff we can't take with us when we die? Why not focus instead on what we can take with us when we die? which is love and its many qualities. Kindness, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, generosity and tolerance and patience and humor and beauty. Focus on this. Invest in that. It'll last. Again, uh, uh, forgive me if I... <laughs> if I... If I sound too uh, sarcastic about any of this. Let me jump over the, to the telephones and see if I got any hands raised. No, we do have a couple of people calling, but no hands up. Star 2 on the telephone, if you'd like to have me unmute you and bring you on with your question or your comment. Okay, let's take a couple of more, and then we'll do a meditation and a guided imagery exercise and call it call it a day. Uh, let's see where they leave off. Donna. And then Donna comes back and says, by the way, I have all of Leo Biscaglia's books, and I watched them on public TV for a long time. He loved life and was such a wonderful example of what we can be. Gave his tapes and books for gifts, and would you explain more in your reality? I, I always liked Leo Biscaglia, too. And uh, 
I assume you bring him up because I quoted from him in the newsletter this week. Um, Lorelai in Tucson comes back with a comment about not watching the news, and I do not read the newspaper. I only listen to Progressive Talk Radio and you, meaning this webinar. A few years ago, I became hypnotized by the local news and became very depressed and paranoid and quickly snapped out of it. Well, good for you. Again, with 40 years' experience as a journalist, you might find it surprising that I would support you. <laughs> well, you wouldn't, but others might. Why would a guy that invested his whole career in journalism tell you not to listen to the news? You said it, Lorelei, because it hypnotized you, right? You became the walking dead, and most of us do. And that can happen even if we only watch progressive stuff, even if you're only watching Rachel and Lawrence O'Donnell and Ed Schultz and listening to Randy Rhodes and Stephanie Miller. I love those shows, but you've got to be careful because they can scare you just as much as watching Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity. When you expose yourself repeatedly to how corrupt and evil the ruling class can be, and how many of your friends and neighbors aspire to be like that. Boy, I wish I could make $300 million a year like Rush Limbaugh. I'd sell my soul for that. I'd lie and cheat and steal for even $100 million a year. No, you wouldn't. Oh, not, not if you're listening to this, you wouldn't. Right. Some people would. Forgive them. Have some mercy. They're terrified. Have some compassion. You know, it's really hard to believe that the most evil people in the world are frightened. But you need to work on that. You need to understand that all evil, everything bad, wrong, negative, you know, immoral, unethical, is rooted in fear and ignorance doesn't excuse it, but it certainly will help you understand it. Patricia Vega is with us today from Los Angeles. Hello, Patricia. She says, Aloha, I will often feel that nobody really knows anything. And sometimes that depresses me, although I don't know why, but then I can still enjoy being a helping hand and love. That's it. That's it. Uh, now, one of the differences between wisdom and knowledge is knowing what you don't know and appreciating what you do not know, recognizing how much more there is to know. So a fool is someone who believes they know a lot. And a wise woman, a wise man, is one who as they acquire more knowledge, ask better questions and realize how much they do not yet know and put their attention on the question <laughs> rather than trying to have all the answers. Now, if you want power over other people, you're going to want to have all the answers. But if you want to empower yourself, it's enough to know that you don't know. That's really beautiful. That's really smart, I think. Thank you. 
Rob Fiegel in uh, Irvine, California. Aloha, Michael. How do you stay motivated on days when you feel uninspired? I allow myself to have uninspired days. I accept that on this day, I feel <laughs> low down and funky. They don't happen often, but when they do, if I don't feel like uh, you know being real productive that day, I'm just going to baby myself. If it goes on for more than two or three days, then i got to work on it. I'd, I'd have to do some meditation. That's one thing to do when you're uninspired. Meditate. Uh, read inspirational literature. If you don't feel like reading, then watch some inspirational videos. If you don't have a Netflix account, then get on YouTube or Google it and find something that does inspire you. Look up some spiritually based or psychologically relevant, philosophically rich information that will allow you to let go of the fear and anxiety that's blocking your love. The only fear and ignorance can block love and understanding. So it's by facing what we don't know, by facing our fear and our ignorance, that we begin to understand it, breathe through it, and let go of those barriers and those blocks. I'm always fascinated when I see somebody use the word overcome in a personal development context, because it's not a matter of overcoming adversity. It's a matter of letting it go. Every block and every barrier in our lives is ours. The walls that stand between us and what we would like are made out of our fear. We laid every brick carefully. Those are our walls. And we might put them up to protect us, but they end up imprisoning us. That's that's the problem with walls. <laughs> um, let's see. Patricia says there's not enough room in this little box <laughs> to express what I really want to say. So next week I'll call you. Thanks. I love that. Uh, let's see. Phil Joffe wants to know what PVC is. Phil, why don't you Google it? I don't understand why you don't just Google it. I posted a video of this most amazing machine, and it's made out of PVC. And this fellow in, was it Scotland or Ireland or someplace in Europe, uh, northern part of England or Europe, maybe Scandinavia, built these, or is building these incredible machines powered by wind that walk up the beach all by themselves. He calls them life forms. And it says it's made out of PVC. PVC is polyvinyl chloride, but uh, it's just a plastic. PVC tubing is a common kind of conduit. Uh, I think it's used less for electrical wires and more for um, um, water. I think water is run through PVC pipes instead of because it's cheaper than copper. Um, but I'm not sure. Google it. You don't know. Google it. You know, you don't have to come to me. 
but I'm happy to answer since you have. In Torrance, a fellow who, or a woman who identifies themselves simply as the letter T, T in Torrance, hello T. They say, Michael, how do I change deep ingrained personal beliefs such as life equaling suffering? Ah, he says, this was planted in my Korean culture as well as my, by my own mother. Uh, yeah, this is a basic message in a lot of religion. Um, you know, the best answers that I have found to this are also in religion, but they're not taught. If you're a Christian, you'd have to actually read the New Testament, and I find very few Christians do. They don't have time. And so they rely on somebody else's interpretation. Hold on a sec here before my coffee gets cold. Down to two cups, that's all I'm drinking. Um, Buddhism is based the Four Noble Truths. And the whole story of Buddhism is based on the challenge that Prince Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, took up as a, as a teenager when he was first exposed to three things, aging, sickness, and death. Because as a prince, his father and mother were a king and a queen, and when Siddhartha was born, the sages and astrologers said that this baby prince would either be a great king and rule much of the world, or a holy man who disavows all material possessions. Well, the king said, I won't have any of that holy man stuff, so I want him to be a king like his old man, so we're going to protect him and make sure he never sees aging, sickness, or death. But being a somewhat impetuous, curious teenager, Siddhartha gets out of town and encounters all three. So he spends seven years in the forest as an aesthetic, depriving himself, following Brahmins, Brahmanism, and the aesthetic way, depriving himself of all material goods, uh, standing on one foot for hours, sleeping on a bed of nails, eating one grain of rice per day, and it didn't work. <laughs> it did not bring him any enlightenment at all. And it was not until, as the story goes, this is symbolic, of course, that he uh, finds the middle way between materialism and abject poverty. And he discovers that as he sits under the Bodhi tree on the bank of the Ganges, and a lute player, a guitar player, uh, a teacher and a student are floating down in this barge. And the young Buddha, who's in his mid-30s at this point, um, hears the guitar teacher instructing the student with the words, essentially, do not tighten the guitar string too tight for it will break but if it is too loose it will not sound 
and he got, oh, the middle way <laughs> between too tight and too loose. So between materialism, investing gold, right, and money and power and stuff, and the Brahmanism, the Hinduism of you've got to do penance and punish yourself and, uh, you know, self-flagellation, beat yourself with whips and all of this, deprive yourself of materialism. He said, maybe there's a balance somewhere in the middle. And uh, so the third way, or the middle way, is essential to Buddhist philosophy. And out of that came the Four Noble Truths, the first which is, life is suffering. And you will get old, and you will get sick, and you will die. And everything that you obtain and possess, you will lose. The good news is that everything that you obtain and possess is an illusion. Why? Because you're going to lose it. <laughs> if it was real, you can hold on to it. But it's going to break, right? It's going to need repair. You've got to go buy a new one. Uh, <laughs> nothing lasts. All things must pass. No man steps in the same river twice, yada, yada, yada. So we've got to do better than, than, than that. We've got to get real. And that's what's meant by life is suffering. Now, you know, how you suffer is largely up to you. The second noble truth is that suffering, which is really more discontentment, it's a lack of fulfillment, or as Mick Jagger said, a lack of satisfaction. Can't get no satisfaction. It doesn't have to be real suffering in the sense of some people really do suffer, you know. Some people are tortured and, and starving and in and, and pain, and that, that's real suffering. But when Buddha talked about life as suffering, he means you'll never really be satisfied if you pursue power in the material world and stuff, it's not going to fill you up. It's not going to last, right? Rich people are no more likely to be happy than poor people. Some of them are, many aren't. Poor people, some are very happy, many are not. Rich or poor, some are happy, many are not. It's got nothing to do with materialism. So the second noble truth is we set ourselves up for suffering by desire. Not just the desire for material things, but the desire for things to be different or other than they actually are. A refusal to accept. And Western humans are, uh, people from the Western Hemisphere, Europe and America, are especially resistant to acceptance because they don't understand the word. Acceptance doesn't mean the end, give up, throw in the towel. It means this is where we begin. Get real. Accept it. You are going to get old, and you are going to get sick, and you're going to die. So prepare for it. Instead of desiring for things to be other than they actually are, get real. Right. So the third noble truth is sort of a Dr. Phil approach to things, stop it. That's <laughs> it just Don't do that anymore. And the fourth noble truth is what to do instead, which is the noble eightfold path, which is, first of all, right belief. 
you've got to understand karma and the laws of causation, of cause and effect. Uh, right thoughts. You've got to be positive in your thinking. Put your attention on what you do want rather than what you don't want. Uh, right action and so on down the list. It's a little esoteric, and I'm not going to dwell on that. But the idea that life is suffering um, is a place to begin. I don't think that your Korean culture or the religions we've been exposed to uh, mean for us to, again, it's it's like understanding the idea of acceptance. It's not like accept that, accept that life is suffering and then lay down and do nothing about it. It's like recognize at least the second noble truth that we set ourselves up for it. And it's not necessary. Life is suffering because we want it always to be different than it actually is. And we're distracted by our thoughts and disturbed feelings from the moment. We don't live in the moment. As Lorelai said, we're hypnotized. We're walking around in a daze. We, we think gold is real <laughs> and has value, right? Well, fill your coffin with it for all the good it'll, it'll do you. Take it backpacking with you if you think it'll feed you and keep you warm at night. <laughs> These are banned symbols. And the freedom from suffering never comes from understanding other people's symbols. Freedom from suffering always comes from knowing yourself, understanding yourself. Look within and discover that you are the love that you're looking for. And this is found in all religions. If you read them yourself, think about it yourself, study it yourself, and stop listening to the TV preachers and those that finish the sermon by send your love gift, send me money, send it now. This is free. This is absolutely free. This doesn't cost a nickel, right? And I wouldn't even think to charge you. Steve and I would like to defer our broadband costs. And so we have a premium audio program at FocusedPassion.com, and we ask the exorbitant contribution of 99 cents a program for a studio quality program that could be sold for 15, 20 or 30 dollars, 99 cents. So even then, if you want to support us, go to Focused Passion and buy some of those programs for 99 cents. There's also the option to subscribe for 3.96 a month. Um, and that's about a, that that shows you how much emphasis we're putting on the the need to make money with all of this. This will, this mystery school will always be free, and we don't pass the hat around. Um, and it's my gift, and I get all kinds of wonderful non-monetary rewards from it. I feel good when I'm done. You know, I, I shut this thing down in a few minutes. I'll finish, and I'll feel great all day just because I did this. Because I got to talk to you guys. Because I got to share a little bit of my enthusiasm and my hope and and my love with you and uh, <laughs> how much more could I ask for than that right so 
that's about all I have to say about that. Talked myself right into a cul-de-sac. Uh, let's see. I've got a message from... Um, oh, here we go. In Long Beach, Arella. Hello to everyone. You're talking about being in the present moment. And I'm still thinking, how can we cope with all this stress that we get from different sources, saying that earthquakes and polarity changes and calamities will happen in 2011, 2012. Notice that's not now. Arella, you know, I'm talking about the present moment, but you're still thinking about, you know, the future. How can we eliminate that fear? Stop thinking about the future and <laughs> bring yourself back to the present moment. Does that mean I, I'm not supposed to think about those atrocities and so-called future events? Yeah. Why? Why would you do that? I don't understand. Actually, I do understand. We do it because we think somehow focusing on fear will make us feel safe. But if we focus on feeling safe now, we become vulnerable, and that's scary. I'm here to tell you that is popular and common, but it's insanity. To think the way to safety is by focusing on fear, but if I focus on being safe now, that would be frightening. You've reversed the definitions. It's Orwellian. Right? That's like war is peace. Um, <laughs> I know it's popular, but it's crazy. Uh, the way to feel safe is to put your attention on feeling safe right now. Putting your attention on fear of something that isn't real yet, hasn't happened, probably never will happen, and as often the future is not going to help you feel safe. But that's the bias. I understand it. That's what I was taught to. I just have you consider that that may be the problem. So she says, does that mean I'm not supposed to think about these things? Yeah, why? That some say the earth will go through. Well, I bet they're selling a book. I bet they have some financial interest in promoting this. What sells? Fear? Or everything's okay? <laughs> right? I remember interviewing Marilyn Ferguson in the early 80s when her book, Aquarian Conspiracy, came out. And we had this great conversation about how war isn't sexy enough. I mean, about how war is sexy and exciting, but peace isn't sexy enough. Right? It's, it's not titillating. Uh, and I don't know why, because peace is ecstasy and bliss. And everybody's really looking for that but on the surface explosions and car chases and people getting shot and that's much more exciting if you put your attention on what you don't want your feelings are going to follow alright so um, my screen refreshed and I lost track here we go um, and just enjoy what I have in the moment yes Still, rhetorically, the question about future comes into my mind. Wow, I keep getting bumped off my own. I keep getting bumped over into the telephones. 
Let me try this one more time. Uh, comes into my mind, best wishes. I understand that. And the mind needs training. It really does. Okay, well, we're pretty much out of time. I want to do a quick meditation before the top of the hour. Uh, I want to acknowledge Becky in Lakeland. I assume that's in Florida. And Lorelei in Tucson, who came back with another question. And Bob Fiegel has another question. Bruce in Oregon. And Roberto in Oceanside. Thank you so much. This works. And that's what I wanted to know. Are you willing to participate? Now, the only challenge is, can we get some of you on the telephone and willing to talk on the telephone, just like we used to do on the radio? The big challenge here, and I knew this when I was doing radio 30 years ago and more, the vast majority of people who listen to talk radio would never call. So in order to get just a couple of callers, You've got to have hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people, and that's difficult to do on a live Internet webcast. Okay, People aren't quite, I know the Internet's 15 years old, but it's easier to remember to turn on your radio for a live program that you listen to every day or every week at this time than to go to the Internet. We're just not accustomed to going to the Internet for live stuff, but hopefully we can make that work in the future. In any event, I really appreciate your participation, and I'm really excited about this. Would you send me an email if you like this format? I find this, again, with 150 programs already in the can, uh, I've, I've said it, I've done it. <laughs> you want me to keep going over those topics again and again and again? Or should we go to this kind of a format? Would you let me know? Would you email me at my initials, MB, like Mary Baker, Michael Benner, at theagelesswisdom.com. MB at theagelesswisdom.com. Check out the website, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of the address. After the W's, dot theagelesswisdom.com. Dot com. Click on the free newsletter button. If you're not getting the newsletter, leave me a first name and an email address. We'll make sure you get that. And when you get a chance, check out Focused Passion. This is a premium audio, studio quality, really deep conversations with two of me. <laughs> My business partner for 35 years and then some, Steve Snyder and myself. And, um, again, these are studio-quality programs that we podcast out, and all on personal empowerment, personal development and growth, human potential, spiritual development, practical stuff. And, again, 99 cents, you know, we've priced it about, uh, maybe it's too low. Maybe people don't want to bother because it's only 99 cents. Well... You want to pay more? <laughs> we'll see if we can find a way for you to do that. Um, and that's at our sister site, FocusedPassion.com. Also, those of you who came to our retreat, the Mindfulness Retreat in Maui, uh, a week and a half ago, was it a week before last? Wow, thanks. What a great group of people, and what a wonderful time we had. 
I'll bet you we're going to do it again. Steve and I are both excited to create another Maui mindfulness retreat. And it was like two days of intense instruction followed by three days of practice. Sending people home with tools that they can use to create an instant paradise wherever they happen to be, whatever they happen to be doing. Close your eyes and with a single breath return to that experience of mindfulness in the present moment. Be patient with yourselves also. I understand that you're worried and nervous and frightened. I know it. I, I got nothing to offer you that I haven't worked through myself. All right? I'm just like you in so many ways. I'm not advanced. I'm not superior. This is my focus. You've got your focus, and I probably need your expertise and your knowledge in this area or that, things that you do really well that I know nothing about. This just happens to be my purview and my area of concern, and I'm thrilled that you've come here and hope you'll make it a habit, at least to listen to the podcast. But if you can join us Sundays at 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock Eastern, 21 hours GMT in the wintertime, 20 hours GMT, UTC, in the summertime. That'd be great. Let's do a quick little meditation. If you'll close your eyes, get comfortable and relaxed. Do a couple of head rolls and some shoulder shrugs. Get loose as a goose. (laughs) And feel balanced as you sit upright. Not rigid, but balanced and said so that you can create and sense relaxation in your scalp. Feel the space around your ears sag or droop a little bit. And in the neck and the shoulders. You know how it feels when you get in a nice warm shower and you let that water run down your body when you first get in the shower and it feels so relaxing. Feel that same letting go from the shoulders down to the tips of your fingers, moving through the core of your body, muscles relaxing and unwinding, down through your hips and into your legs, through the knees and the calves, all the way to the tips of your toes and the soles of your feet. Feel the letting go. I'd like you to lift your awareness to the bottom of your nose and spend a moment or two simply watching your breath. Your breath is your friend and your body automatically autonomically breathes itself all by itself. And you can bring your attention to your breath as a simple and effective way at any time of coming into the reality of the present moment. Or you are safe where you're free from 
the fears and anxieties of the future and the humiliation and false assumptions you've made about yourself in the past. The breath will bring you to the present moment. And visualize with your mind's eye a beautiful place of perfect peace, a garden, a paradise. However it occurs to you, whether you're high in a mountain, deep in a valley, in a sunny, warm meadow, filled with beautiful wildflowers, or deep in a cool, shady, forested place, find yourself seated upon the ground in what for you is ideally a place of perfect peace a place of ideal relaxation and safety. And simply breathe. And notice that you don't have to consciously form the intention to breathe, but rather form the intention to watch your body Breathe itself. And so you can take a step back and mindfully detach as you watch the breath and acknowledge how safe you feel and consider that life conspires to support you that even if you refuse to micromanage every decision, even if you take the risk of not working on solving problems that you don't even have yet, and preparing for a future that is not imminent, but just might be, if you refuse to do that, you're still safe. and experiencing peace and harmony and beauty. Commit yourself to kindness even when people don't deserve it. Be especially kind and thoughtful to people who have hurt you, to people who are mean and nasty to you. And I'm not saying you need to expose yourself to this abuse, but when it happens, breathe into it. Forgive them. They're as frightened as you and probably more. And reorient yourself, remembering what you'll see as you open your eyes in just a moment. Reminding yourself how easily and quickly you can come back to this place for even just two or three minutes to renew yourself. Inhale now, fill your lungs, hold, 
as you peek, and now as you exhale, uh, open your eyes wide awake and alert back in the room, feeling fine, better than before, right here, right now, in the present moment. I'd love to hear from you. Email me, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.